All scripture is given for spiritual understanding and natural application. So what we are about to begin to read is supposed to give us spiritual understanding to know how the Spirit of God works, how things work, and then we go and use it in our lives. It has been so cool and so fun for, for me personally just in the studies and getting to, to share this with you and hearing the conversations that we're all having and how we can read something. This is how we know it is the living Word of God. It is something because we can read it and turn around and years later, six months later, six minutes later and read it. And it, it's like, oh, I get it. But like it just gives me that little bit more to, to view to understand God and how he does what he does and through the person of Christ. So that being said, we have went through quite a few parables on Sunday. We have also went through quite a few events and things like that on the Wednesdays. That's kind of how we're doing this, right? We're doing kind of more parables on Sunday and events on Wednesday. And I get it for some of you, you're kind of thinking like, yeah, but this parable happens in the middle of this event. And so, but the reason we're breaking it up that way is the parables are tied to the event, but they have a meaning in and of themselves. So why we want to understand the parables very much in detail, that way while we're reading and then we hit that parable, we're like, ah, I see, right? And so today's kind of one of those times where what we're going to talk about, we're going to read up to a parable that we've already talked about, which is the salt and light, right? So we're going to read everything that was said right before this comes uh, to, to fruition. We're going to talk about three core things. We're going to talk about just the call of the disciples, like when the disciples kind of came. We're going to kind of talk about that briefly. Then we're going to talk about the first message of Jesus, and then we're going to talk about the main, 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 biggest course of, of, of Scripture of Jesus' sermon that there is. Those are kind of the three things we're going to talk about, and we're going to go through, okay? So the first thing let's do is let's talk about the call of the disciples real quick. I put this in there in a little bit more detail for you, so I'm just going to kind of recap it. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. But basically, when we look at the call of the disciples and we look at all four Gospels, it happens pretty much the same, all right? It happens in slightly different orders as far as who got called, when, where, why. And then there's a whole group of them, like five of them, that it just says, and they're the disciples. And they just, you know, it doesn't say where they came from, how long they had been following. It just simply says they're also a part of the disciples. Um, so we do see a couple encounters, every single one of the four Gospels, the three synoptic and then the abstract Gospel. So that would be John, right? Three synoptic, one abstract. They all give the account of the disciples being called. Moreover, they all specifically give a little bit more detail about like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're kind of the guys we see one with, with Nathaniel, we see one with uh, Philip, we see, we see them, but they kind of focus more on these, these core guys. Now, one of the things we need to kind of look at though is John does share this, but John tends to always refer to them just as a group. He tends to kind of just always just say the disciples. He may mention a few of them by name and say this, but as a whole, John doesn't really call out which one, when, where, why. Why? Because he's more concerned about the spiritual thing, so he's just saying the disciples. He's not really trying to give you a lot of history of it. The other three are giving you some history behind it just so you can get some context. Some of the context that you can have if you refer to these, like I said, I'm not going to read them tonight because this is more of like, Jesus isn't really speaking. We're going to read one area where Jesus does speak that's mentioned in all four, and it's the very, very famous, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We're going to read that. Um, but basically everywhere else when the disciples come, there's only a few words and interactions, and we're going to break them apart in detail as we go on. 
but I wanted to give it kind of to you up front. Does that make sense? So I'm just kind of hitting it right now. I wanted to kind of encapsulate it because I, I, as we continue on, we're going to see more and more conversations and things that happen with the disciples, right, specifically. So we kind of need to get our brain wrapped around how they came to know Jesus a little bit as we go through it. And we'll dive into each one in a little more detail. Like I said, there's not a whole lot given about it. Um, but they all kind of appear here. Um, the orders, like I said, are, are, are kind of varying. One of the things I'd like to point out about the disciples specifically is something that we kind of think of and we say, but we don't really think of in the context of the culture of the day, which is this. Oh, they weren't, they weren't like, you know, all super affluent and, and rich people. They were men's men. They were, they, were, they were this, right? We talk about this. They're like they were from all walks of life. This is very true. Matter of fact, um, none of them were like of any nobility at all. Um, none of them had any kind of super like religious position or clout um, within the Jewish community, really, at all. None of them did. Um, like four of them are fishermen, you know, um, which is like a pretty common thing from the Galilean area and stuff like that. But I wanted to read to you just a few things as I was studying their backgrounds that kind of puts it into a little bit uh, of context. Um, why will this not scroll down? Uh, whoa. Okay. We're going to do it that way. I see you. Um, which is this right here, okay? Um, the, 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 the order is, is irrelevant. I want to read this to you. If any were noble background, hardly any, no religious clout, at least four were fishermen, Simon was a zealot. So to think about this for a zealot, they were a political group within the, the, the Israelite culture that were trying to overthrow the Romans, Okay? So this was like a rebel guy that was actively trying to overthrow the Roman government, okay? On the other hand, you have Matthew who worked for the Roman government as a tax collector. So he would have been viewed as like a traitor to the Jewish people. So you have, just in that alone, you've got like fishermen that are like, hey, just let us do our job. Like, I don't want to know, like anything like that. You've got one guy who is like trying to actively overthrow the government. Think like Guy Fawkes, blow up parliament. Like that's what a zealot was. Okay. Like he is, he's not just like, like we all do run our mouths about the government. He is actively trying to overthrow it. And he abandons that thing to go follow Jesus. And then he ends up doing that with a guy who he would have hated because he betrayed Israel and became a tax collector for the Romans. So just, I think that can help us understand, like, we're always like, there were you know, one big happy family. It's like these guys, life before Christ would have never, some of them would have never, some of them were brothers and some of them, but others would have not interacted with each other. There would have been, can you think about that for a minute? Just like having to now come to, come to, to grips with, we both see the Messiah and we have to forget all of our past. There's a lot we could understand with that. But I just want to kind of put that in perspective a little bit about the disciples. So I do want to read one little section right here, which is Luke chapter 5. This is um, Luke's account of the call of some disciples, Peter, um, you know, James, John, all these kind of guys. And, and, and this is his account. Now, the reason I chose Luke's account is because if you read the other accounts, they're kind of more vague. Luke gives us a little more detail. Luke kind of sets it on a little bit of a different scene. And I just want to kind of read through it so we can kind of um, understand this, right? It says, so it came to pass that the people pressed on him to hear the word of God. And when he stood by the lake of that place, um, if you want to try to pronounce it, go for it. Um, and then the two ships standing on the lake, but the fishermen's were gone out of them. So there's two empty ships. There's no fishermen because they were over here washing their nets. 
And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, so that's Peter's ship, okay? And he prayed him, or he asked him um, that he would put it out a little bit from the land, so kind of push him out from the shore so he could see everybody a little bit better, right, and talk to everybody. And then he sat down on the ship, and he taught them, right? So if you can imagine, like you're on the beach, okay? If, you know, maybe there's palm trees. There's not in Israel, by the way. But let's just imagine, you know? And everybody's here, and he's like, hey, I'm going to get in this empty ship that's Peter's and push me out just a little bit so I can talk to all of y'all, okay? And so then he begins to teach. And when he had left speaking, he said to Simon, launch, me out, and, uh, launch out into the deep and let your nets down. Um, and basically what this means is let them down and drag to, to pick up the fish, right? So go fishing, all right, in the deep. And Simon, which is Peter, so just keep in mind when I say Simon, that's Peter. He just hasn't been called Peter yet, okay? Uh, answered to him and said, Master, we've toiled all night and we've taken on nothing. Nevertheless, Thy word, I'll let down my next because you said, like, we, we ain't caught anything. This is, this is an exercise in futility to do this. But he says, and when this had been done, they enclosed a great multitude of fish, and they broke their nets, and they beckoned to their partners, which were in the other ship, that they would come and help them. And so they came and filled up both ships so that they began to sink. So this idea is they had been fishing all night long. They couldn't catch anything. Jesus says, after we're done teaching now, he says, hey, go out into this deep area here and uh, throw your nets all the way down and, and let's see. And they're like, we ain't going to catch anything, but if it'll tickle your fancy, let's do it. And he throw, throw it out there. And they get so much it's breaking their nets, so they call the other ship in, and it fills up both ships, weights them down so much that they're almost going to sink. And when Peter saw it, he fell down at, the, uh, at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, we don't understand this idea, but this idea is that he realizes in this moment he is, he is, he is in the presence of someone other than, than just like a prophet or other than just that there's something special. But some of y'all are thinking, no, he already knew. See, this is something we miss. Because when we read it, and like, we read it a lot of times like this. Jesus is just walking down the shore because this is how Matthew says it. He doesn't give us anything. Matthew is just like, Jesus is walking down the shore and he looks at these guys. He's like, hey, follow me. And they're like, okay. And they just leave everything and they leave. Like that's kind of how we, we view it, right? Because as we keep reading, we see they abandon their ships, their everything. They leave it all and they go with him, okay? Why? They had already been interacting with him. They'd already started seeing things. Obviously, he knew Peter, either that or Jesus was the first pirate and commandeered his ship. Right? It says he got on the ship, which was Peter's, and he said, hey, Peter. So he knew Peter. They knew each other. Mind you, also, keep in mind the culture of the day. These are small villages, and they lived in the same area. They've known each other on and off. Hey, Jonathan, could you do the... Uh, my keys are over there. If, it, uh, if it's locked, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if anybody's been in there or not. Um, what's up? They're right here. I'm sorry, pause. Y'all may not can hear it, but it bugs me to no end. It is that key. So, okay. So, we kind of view it like they knew each other, right? They've had these conversations. And now, Peter's realizing this, and he says, no, you, you, I, I'm not even worthy to be around you. I'm sinful. I'm missing my mark. I'm not, like, I'm not, you know, I, no, we just, we can't be, be. And he was astonished for all of the fish that they had taken, right here. And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, okay, which were partners with him. So, so basically what we see is we see Peter, James, and John, they're partners and they're fishermen. 
Jesus gets out on their boat. Witness, they witness uh, him teaching. It doesn't say if they received it. It doesn't really say much about what Jesus said. It doesn't really tell us any of that. It just says that after that, then he says, hey, go do this go do this thing, and they're like, all right, cool, let's do it. So they had to have some kind of a relationship here, obviously. And then when they do it, it starts astonishing them. Peter's like, whoa, I'm not even worried to be around you. Like, no, you, 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 we can't do this, right? And then it says that his partners, they're partners in business, okay? And they're all like, no, we see it too. And Jesus said unto Peter, fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. This is Luke's way of saying what Mark and Matthew both say this way, which is, I'll make you fishers of men. Basically, Jesus saying, don't worry, I won't break your boats anymore. <laughs> We're going to go do some spiritual stuff. And then they had brought their ships from land. They forsook all and followed him. Now, we need to understand this phrasing, forsook all, which literally means they left it. They completely left it in its place where it was. That's what it means. To completely forsake means to have left and made no preparations, like just, just gone. Now, this is also... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all showing us things that Jesus asks of people later on, which is to abandon everything, which is also what we see happening in some of the Old Testament when, Jesus, uh, or when, when God is calling out to like Elijah and calling out to people. He's saying, now you're going to leave your father. You're going to leave these things. This is a little bit of what we're getting here. So I just wanted to kind of show you a little bit because sometimes we romanticize this entire idea in which Jesus was just like glowing with a yellow aura that just when people just he just was something was on him like when he walked it didn't even look like he was just gliding across the ground and then because of that he just said you Sharon follow me and they were like no if that was the case why did they doubt him all the time later on so we see there's relationship and through the relationship then all of a sudden they begin to perceive the spiritual side of this thing right so I just want to give you a little context as to who we're reading about and what we're reading about. So then I also, just for fun, because I've heard so many people say this uh, in the notes, was, most people are like, I can name a few of the disciples, Peter, James, John, Judas. And that's about where we can stop. I just went ahead and listed all of them here for you, so you know all 12. And some of them have the same names, and that's why they also have little extras to them. Um, you'll notice a, a theme in all of this, which is names change throughout the Bible, and that is not... That it, that there's two types of name changes, okay? There's the name change that people did when we wrote it to help it make more sense, but then there's the name changes that happened in real life, like, you know, Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. That was a name change that had symbolic meaning. Same thing with, like, Simon, who became Peter. This was a symbolic name change that, that Jesus called out to him, right? So we have some of these types of things, too, okay? So now let's talk about the first message of Jesus. Now, the first message of Jesus, you'll notice, I list it all here. And it all is one. It's, it, it, they don't say, here's an entire sermon from Jesus. They say, he went around teaching. All four accounts, uh, that are, well, I put the three here. No, I put the fourth one. There's John. All four accounts basically give us one concept and understanding. He went around preaching, and then they sum it up with one statement, which is a simple one, but a profound one that helps us understand the breadth of basically everything Jesus is about to tell us for the rest of the Gospels. So we need to think about that. This first initial thing that they sum up as just saying, this is what he came to begin to share. This is the main point, and it's this one phrase. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a three-part thing. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. So what does it mean? Let's just put it in our vernacular because we don't tend to say the word repent in daily life unless we are referring to spiritual things. What does the word repent mean? Right? I don't go to my kids and say, you better repent from that. Right? What do I say? 
It means to change one's mind. Literally, the word in Greek is the word metanoia. It comes from two words, meta and noia. Meta means to shift or to change, and noia means thoughts or knowledge. So metanoia, change your thoughts, change your knowledge, change your understanding, change your direction. So what Jesus, is, his main message was change what you're doing because the reason you need to change is because the kingdom of God, which is the God's rule, reign, and dominion, or the way he would do things, is here now. Right now, Okay. So that encapsulates most of everything Jesus is about to say. Like that is, like if you were to say, hey, like if you had to sum up in one sentence, what did Jesus really come to try to like, like all of it? Like what did you say? You can't go through the 15 points of Christianity. You've got to give one sentence. What would you say? Repent, change your ways, <laughs> because right now God's rule, reign, and dominion is ready and available. It's at hand. You can grab it. It's here. And then everything we see is Jesus explaining how the kingdom of God is coming in here, how he does these things. It explains the how behind this one core idea. Okay? If you don't believe me, test me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. After the end of all of this, you'll find out no. Now, yeah, well, don't talk to Sarah. She will tell you, yes, there is wicked ways in me. Uh, (laughs) But... This kind of gives us that premise. We talked about this basically the very first week, right? That's technically the first message of Jesus. But it's not the first sermon that we see. It's just the first summary. Then we have what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which who's, who's ever heard the Sermon on the Mount? Who's ever heard the Sermon on the Plain? Yes. Uh, there were no snakes on them, but uh, no. <laughs> so the Sermon on the Mount is an account from Matthew. It is the first considered sermon that Jesus gives. And you notice they summarize it. Jesus got really long-winded. He went from repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, to three straight chapters almost, <laughs> right? So this is a full-on sermon that Jesus gives. Now, Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Luke, on the other hand, his is called the Sermon on the Plain. Much people don't like the plane, like a plateau. Most people uh, don't realize that's what it's called because it tends to take place uh, and it has the same information as, Mar- uh, as Matthew's does, just slightly different, okay? So we're going to talk about this real quick. So the Sermon on the Mount occurs in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read that tonight. Uh, and then you have Luke chapter 6. Now, again, this sermon is literally two to two and a half full chapters of straight red letters Jesus talking. We've already seen bits and pieces of it in other sessions, and we're going to read through those again when we get there. But what we've had to do to really be able to break down what he's saying, we're going to have to do this in two parts. So we're going to approach a bit of it tonight, a bit of it next Wednesday, and if we're not through, then we'll do it again the next Wednesday. I was told to slow down, so I'm slowing it down, okay? Um, So to get this sermon, this is a huge bulk. When we read through this at one, uh, over the course of the next three weeks and we read it all together, you're going to find a whole lot of scriptures and things that you hear people quote a lot all happen in this one sermon. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and Luke's Sermon on the Plain. Here's why. When you look at them side by side, you see they could be the exact same sermon given at the same place, same time almost, or, or for sure, And Luke just summarizes certain things because they follow each other really, really close. But Luke just kind of takes out some things and adds some other things. 
But if you read it, in my view, and in, 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 in a lot of even other scholars as I've read it, it seems to point that these is this, this is the same sermon given twice, very closely together. And we can see that when we read a little bit before each one of these, when Jesus begins to speak. In Matthews, it says they went up a mountain, and where the people came from uh, all, all over Judea, and he lists a couple places up on this mountain. But when we look over at Luke's, he says they went into a plateau coming down from a mountain, and it says a bunch of people from Judea were there, and it lists a bunch of places. Some of them are the same, but some of them are different. And so it seems to allude more to this idea in which Matthew is giving an account of a sermon that happened on the mount, and then maybe down that mountain, by the time they got down, there were more people that were like going to come up. This is kind of the picture that seems to be painted between the two, right? Can you imagine, right? Put yourself in their day and age. You did not have InstaChat. Uh, you didn't have all these mechanisms to be like, bro, Jesus is on the mountain right now. Let's go and get in a car. Uber. Like, no, it, it, was, it was like, it would have taken hours, right? Sometimes even days before you would have known. And that's why if you look in Scripture, you see Jesus is at locations for days on end. It wasn't just like, show up, I flew in today, I'm teaching this message, and I'm going over here to the Mount of Olives tomorrow. It's like weeks at a time. And so what seems to be painted, I'm not saying this is 100%, but just to get a picture, it seems to be that Jesus was in this area of Galilee, he goes up on this mount, and a bunch of people know he's going to be giving, giving a message there kind of a thing. They would have told it, you know, maybe he just came from the shores, we don't exactly know yet. But what we do know is he's up on a mountain and a group of people come. The picture it seems to paint is when Luke tells, basically, as they come down the mountain, now they're on the, the plateau area here, there's a bunch more people. And he proceeds to give the same message in a slightly different way. Which, guys, that's kind of just like Jesus. Like, hey, I just said all this, there's more people. I'm cool with saying this all over again. And he did it. Matter of fact, if we look at other places he talks, like his parables... How many parables have we read so far? Like four? And how many times is it like, well, that's saying the same thing as the one right before it. Like he just used this example and this example and this is because he, as long as it gets the point across, he'll retell and retell in different ways. So it makes sense in my view that this could be basically two separate occasions. It could be days apart, could be in di even completely different areas. It doesn't seem to be because they both place it in Galilee. They both place it kind of in this general area. It probably happened pretty close to each other. So either it was this, basically the same message given twice, slightly different to a different audience, you know, and we'll see that as we read it, or it was the exact same thing and they just had two different accounts. The question is to you, does it really matter? No. Uh, you say, well, why did you tell us all that? So you can get the picture. So we understand. So you don't think when you're reading in Matthew and you go over to Luke that you're reading, like, oh, they contradict each other. They didn't say it the exact same way. Well, it could have actually just been that he said it differently the next time around, right? Do you guys think that Jesus never said the same thing twice? No. He said, now I got to go and teach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Maybe he just got bored and came up with new ways to say it. I don't know, right? Why? Except for the fact to reach the people he was talking to. Jesus took that into account, and so that's what he's trying to do, right? So now that we kind of get a little bit of a context as to what's happening between these, these two things here, we're going to begin to read. We're going to focus firstly on Matthew tonight. We're going to read Luke. So most of the definitions we're going to do is in Matthew, okay? Now, what I've done here is I've placed Matthew and Luke side by side, on the screen for you. So that way we can see each account, right? 
so we can kind of see what we're looking at. Matthew chapter 5, it really begins in verse 1, and then Luke chapter 6 begins kind of closer to verse uh, 19, 20. And so what we see in verse, uh, verse 1 and 19 in Luke and Matthew respectively, it's basically saying what happened beforehand. There's a multitude of people. They're trying to get to Jesus. They want him to pray for him. They want, him to, they, they want this, this stuff. And basically him seeing this, he looks up at the disciples. Now, when he says to his disciples, that in this regard, it does not mean the twelve. In this regard, it means to all of them. So basically, all this is happening, and he kind of says, all right, here, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna teach right now. So he goes from this time of ministering, seems to be kind of this idea of, of laying on of hands, one-on-one, all these different things kind of happening, and then he steps back, and he begins to give us this, this sermon right here. Now, this begins with, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the blanks. And we commonly call these the... Beatitudes, okay? Let's call it more some understanding from Jesus. And the reason for that is, is because by calling it the Beatitudes, if you were raised in church and all that kind of stuff, you're like, oh, Beatitudes, I know them, I can quote them to you. Well, that's great. But this is more like commands. This is more like Jesus saying, here's the qualities of a servant for me, these people. Now, one thing we need to see between Matthew and Luke is this. Matthew tends to approach this more of a very spiritual outline type thing of understanding, point, 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 parable. Matthew's is much more, you know, almost like he was an accountant of some sort. He's very specific. Luke's, on the other hand, tends to be more getting the essence of. He doesn't have all of the blessed are those, so the beatitudes, these instructions. He has a few of them. He kind of says them slightly differently, but pretty much the same thing. Then he gives some different things that are commonly called the woes. Whoa, whoa. And these are woes, and the word woe means like, whoa, like stop, stop. Like this will bring, bring grief to you. Do not do this. Like you need to watch out for this. Like, whoa, stop that. That's what that kind of means. I think of a horse because I grew up with horses. Whoa, stop. Okay. So this is what the woes are. Now, Matthew doesn't give any of the woes. Luke does. But Luke's woes match up with others of Matthew's blessed. So if we look at it this way, basically, when Luke writes it, he gives some of the blessed. And then he says, well, let me just approach this from the other side of here's the people that are blessed. But woe to the people that are the opposite of that. So can we see that? So by pairing them together, we kind of get a little bit of a full picture. Now, before we read, I'm going to say one more thing. We're only covering 12 verses. Well, technically like nine verses. So don't worry. I know some of y'all are like, it's only 740, and he has not read a single word yet from this. I have to give you guys text behind it before we read it. One of the things that I've heard more often than not, unfortunately, is People tend to try, when they're reading things that Jesus said, to take them, now hear me clearly, everybody is listening, right? (laughs) Ultra-literally. And what I mean by that is, for instance, I've had had multiple people tell me this, that, oh, you're, you're a pastor, you're a shepherd. That means you get a crown of this. And that is not, A, a literal crown, and B, it's not literally a specific reward. Okay? It's a concept. It's an idea. The things that Jesus did say literally are the things about God directly, about what he came for. Like Those are literal, like direct, right? But when he's talking about these spiritual concepts, they are meant to not be a formula that says, if I mourn, I'm going to be comforted. And if I am meek, I will get more property. This is not how they're meant to read. 
And the reason we need to approach that before we begin to read it, because if we start to have that concept, we start to try to do what I like to call Star Wars gospel, which is God is a force in which if I do the right things, I learn to wield him properly and I can make things happen that I need to happen. And that is not the Spirit of God. That's not how it works. And um, even if it did work that way, you wouldn't be the one because we are not holy enough. But it doesn't work that way. Does that make pretty clear? Okay. So when we read it this way, we tend to start trying to, and, and then what we end up doing is actually doing things out of a greed motive because we're wanting something out of it versus a generosity motive, which is what Jesus and God requires So we need to put that in our concept before we read these. These are to help us understand the type of servants, the type of builders, the type of brides that Christ is looking for. If you're wondering why I use those three phrases, please go refer to the other sessions that we have taught. Now, let's read. We're going to read in Matthew, we're going to, and we're going to see it over here in Luke. So we see this multitude, and then he begins to say, so we're right here in verse 3 of Matthew, and we're also in verse 20, and he begins to say this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You look over here in Luke, it says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Pretty much the same thing. Luke doesn't go into more specific details about it, but... It doesn't. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk about the differences in just a minute. Don't get ahead. Don't get ahead. There's no extra credit. No, I'm just kidding. So let's look at this. We're going to define Matthew's first, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. First word, if you notice in your notes, I defined all the words for you there, okay? The word poor, we tend to think of it as poor like you don't have anything, like you don't have a lot of items, which is a true statement if this was a natural statement. But... It is not only a natural statement. This is a spiritual one. A, we know this because we can look at Scripture. All Scripture is given for spiritual understanding and natural application. We also know it's spiritual because it says the word spirit right here. We also know it's spirit because Jesus is talking about it. And he could care less about the natural world. He told us so much in other things we've already read. Right? So we know this has something more to do with spiritual nature in this text. So let's talk about it. Okay? Poor. The word poor means reduced to begging is the primary meaning of that. Reduced to begging, okay? In spirit. Now, the word in, you'll notice, is a darker text, which means it was not originally there. There, It means that the actual phrase would say, blessed, poor spirit. So, blessed, the word blessed is is not really all uh, that complicated. Now, this is not the same. I need to, to make this very, very clear for those of you who are Old Testament scholars. Uh, this word blessed is not the same word blessed that's in the uh, Old Testament. It's a different word, okay? The word in the Old Testament has a very different meaning, a very different concept behind it, like when God blessed them saying. That's a very different idea than this word blessed. This word blessed basically means to be well off or to be fortunate, okay? So that's how we use it in our modern day, like hashtag blessed. That's, this is what we mean by it, like hashtag fortunate. You know, I'm bragging and calling it God, but probably you just gotten a lot of debt. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so this right here, blessed, means fortunate. So every time we see the word blessed, you're like, this is, you're going to be well off for this, whatever comes next. Poor in spirit or poor spirit. That does not mean less spirit. That means reduced to begging spirit. That word spirit there is pneuma. 
So we can take it this way. Blessed, fortunate are the ones who beg for spirit. It's a, it's a desiring of spirit. That's what he's referring to. Seek first the kingdom of God. We can look at everything else Jesus says. So he's saying, hey, you're going to be fortunate if that. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's the thing that's now that if you turn your ways. What do you need to turn your ways from? You need to be reduced down from everything else to where all you want is the spirit of God. We would commonly say this like, you have finally came to your end of the rope, and then you decided, you know. Jesus is basically saying, some of you are that thick-headed. Okay, <laughs> like, So it's saying, blessed, fortunate are the ones who are, or, or are in a state of begging and want. The next, the next definition of reduced to begging is in want, in desire of spirit, the breath, the life. Because you will have the kingdom of heaven. The way God does things will be what? It, you'll understand it. You'll perceive it, right? Let's go to the next one right here. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted, okay? Now, we also need to understand some things. I put some of it in your notes. Um, I didn't get to put all of it in there. The word mourn means to grieve, and the word comforted literally means to be invited in, okay? This has a dual meaning for us. It has number one meaning of in this world, <laughs> there is grief and suffering, and whenever you have that grief and suffering, again, provided the first thing be true, <laughs> and you want the Spirit of God, then you'll be what? Invited. Invited to what, pray do tell? Almost like a feast and a wedding or something like that. That's what this is in reference to. Oh, by the way, Jesus also said, I'll send the comforter, the one that invites you in, into what? Into the kingdom of God, in which you must desire spirit. Are y'all seeing this? So we treat things sometimes as it's not one thought. This is one thought. Jesus didn't come to tell you a whole lot. He came to tell you one very, very important thing. Okay. So mourn. The other thing that's interesting about the word mourn is if you look into the root of the word to grieve and to mourn or, 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 or to, to be in this state, it tends to carry a meaning. Now, what we need to understand about tends to carry a meaning is like the thought process behind using this particular word. That's what tends to carry a meaning. It doesn't mean when the writer wrote it, that's what they meant. It means every other time it's kind of used, it tends to lean this way so we can use a little bit of process of reasoning, it probably carries an idea of this, which is to mourn and grieve for another. Like not for your own self, but for another. So the idea here tends to be mourning and grieving for another, and, and, and you'll be invited and, and comforted in this. Now again, that is not the primary meaning. I'm, I'm just helping you understand there's, there's like this undertone there. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's how we can understand these undertones that we keep talking about, right? Um, and, and this kind of carries a meaning of. We can use it like when you're talking to your spouse or something like that, and you're saying one thing, but they and you know there's like this other thing you're referring to in the background, right? Y- y'all, y'all are all a liar. Uh, <laughs> okay, how about this one? I was sitting just the other day um, with, with someone, and I was looking at Taryn, and they were like, y'all two are having a conversation right now. Well, we're in a whole nother conversation, but there's an undertone of something else we were discussing, right? So that's not hidden meaning. That's just helping us understand the culture and how they talk and did things, okay? So the primary meaning is this idea of grief and suffering and then comforted spirit of God. This is the answer, okay? Let's continue on. This one is about to slap us silly, guys. Let's catch up over here in Luke real quick. So blessed uh, uh, are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that hunger, and now they shall be filled. Okay, so he's out of order, right? Because that's in verse 6 down here. So you notice how, like, they kind of say it in different orders, but they're getting to the same meaning. We're going to continue to follow Matthew tonight, okay? 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This word meek, guys, is an ouch word. And I want to read you a a section of text from the Strong's as to the definition of the word meek. Okay, we tend to think meek, okay, meek, like like humble. It's like, yeah, that's kind of like saying, you know, Jared's a man. Well, what kind of man? Like, is he a good one? Like, or is he a bad one? Uh, or a real one? I don't know. Um, so the, in this day and age, you kind of have to define a little extra. But you get my point, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's just kind of a broad stroke. So let's understand what it means here, okay? I love this right here. It starts off with the gentleness of spirit. Okay, so we take this and be meek. That means always be soft and kind. It's like, no. That is, that is taking something and twisting it into something that it's not. Because if you look at this, it says gentleness of spirit, meekness, meekness towards God. This is a specific action that has nothing to do with people. Not saying that we're not supposed to be gentle and kind to people. So don't go running off America and going way over here and being like, he said we're going to be rude to people. I did not say that. I just said in this text, what this is referring to is specifically a way you stand before God or the way you think towards God. And meekness, this gentle of spirit, it means to be malleable or to be pliable, to be almost like usable like a potter or something like that. I love this right here. Towards God is that the disposition of your spirit in which you have accepted his dealings with us as good. Think about that statement. You've accepted his dealings with us as good. Meaning you look at the misery that was just before this and you are pliable to the glory of who God is in which you look at God and say, I determine all of the way you deal with me and with this world as good. That's already ouch and we haven't finished, okay? <laughs> I determine it all as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. Can we just think about that for a minute? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the ones whose spirit is moldable and pliable towards God, in which you just look at everything that he deals with us on and says, it is good, so much so that you don't even dispute whether you think it may or may not be good, and moreover that you don't even resist what he's asking of you. I told you that was an ouch word. Now, this also carries a meaning in the Old Testament, and, 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 the, and the Strong's does a great job in this regard of pointing us back to this, so it's in your, your notes there. In the Old Testament, people who were considered meek were people who fully relied on God rather than their own strength to defend them against any injustice. Meaning, I don't go to bat for myself, and I don't look for other people to go to bat for me. In the Old Testament, it was anyone who said, God's going to fight this. In every regard, I told you, that is a harsh, like when we really grasp hold of that, that is a harsh word. I told you, this is fun, right? So blessed are the the meek, and then what what do they get? They inherit the earth. Now, it doesn't say world here. This This is in reference, but there's an idea that we have to understand. First off, inheritance, which is something we're very bad at in this day and age, um, completely, okay? Um, The idea of an inheritance is something that was laid up for you that then puts you basically into possess or to control or to have a portion of, okay? So like you get put in this state almost like we were reading about the foolish and the wise virgins and servants and all this stuff. You get put in a state of now 
because you were so meek and pliable that now you get a little bit of rule and dominion. Is anybody also seeing Genesis in this in which all of earth was given to us, but we decided we had a better idea? <laughs> do, 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 is anybody seeing that, though? Like, like, like right? So you're going to possess, you're going to have the, the earth. Now, the thing about the word earth is it does mean the grounds, like physical ground. But again, we're not talking about physical things, are we? It also has a core meaning of the inhabitants of an area and the fruit that comes from it. So the idea of this idea of, of, of the, the, the productivity, the things that come from it, that we would call them like the blessings or something like that. Not to be confused with this word blessing, but like the things, the produce that comes from this ground is now under your control as well as the inhabitants of the area. Now you may be saying in your head right now, what do you mean inhabitants of an area? Like I'm going to be the ruler of people? Um, we think ruler like you get to demand them, but think more ruler like... A better way to phrase this in our lingo would be like, now you have the ability to speak into people's lives, spiritually as well as, like, naturally. Scripture shows us this later, if you're wondering where I'm getting this from. Scripture shows us this. It says, I'll give you rule over them. It talks about this a lot. That rule is a dual meaning that, yes, in natural life, you get raised to a, a, a status, so to speak, of the ability to rule and reign over an area, right? That could be in business, that could be in your job, that could be in whatever, right? But it carries a more spiritual undertone of this idea, because this is about spiritual matters, this idea in which when you are this thing called meek, which we just read, which is a super difficult thing, is as then you're going to be able to be the one that has a, a dominion and control and a power. The thing that was the craziest to me as I researched the word meek, guys, because this hit me hard, this is just for me, just for me, truly, it is, is meek was supposed to be attributed uh, to like all the priests, and I was just thinking, that means like that's the one I have to focus on the most. (laughs) This is just for me, like I said. So let's continue on here. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is one of the coolest ones to me, guys. I love it, I love it, I love it. So let's look at this idea of hunger and thirst. Why, why give both? Why hunger and thirst? Why not just hunger? Why not desire? Okay, because it, it has this, and guys, you know I gotta say it, because the literal definition of the word hunger is to crave ardently. <laughs> So, so to crave ardently, meaning I desire this thing so much, and it's something that will sustain me. So someone who, who, who will be willing, if you look at the next day, is to suffer. So you're willing to suffer for it. You're passionately desiring this thing. What does the word thirst mean here? To thirst. The figurative meaning... Or those who say to thirst, who painfully feel their want of it, and eagerly long for those things which refresh the soul. So it's not just this avid desire of, it's, 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 it's willing to suffer for it. And what is it? It's, I, I need it because it's, it's something that refreshes the in, inner parts of me. It, it brings the peace. It brings these things. And so I, I, everything, I abandon all, almost like what the disciples had to do, okay, for this thing. What, what is the thing? Righteousness. Now this word righteousness, I 
defined it several times if you want to look at the exact definition right there. I did on this one, just so you know, I combined the Strong's and the Vines uh, expository. They say the same thing, just the Vines had a little bit of an extra R lingo at the end, so I, liked, I wanted to add that in there a little bit to help it. But in the broad sense, the idea of righteousness is the state in one ought to be in, specifically to God. So right standing is the best way we understand that, right? So are we getting this real quick? You're well off if you avidly desire and suffer just to gain righteousness. Now, I hear someone in your head right now saying, well, Jesus made me righteous. Yes, he did. God made you that way too. But you can be made something and try to change yourself actively, which would be the state you ought not be in, brethren. Okay. So for righteousness, for this right standing, what is this righteousness? What is this right standing? Direct communion with God. How do we know that? Genesis gives us that. Also, we see Abraham. It says it was imputed in him to righteousness. Why? Because of his faith and God spoke to him and he became the father of the faith. Yes? Okay. I know I'm doing a lot of Old Testament tie back for you. I'm just peppering them in there uh, just to kind of help you understand. Okay. For they will be filled. And this is where I lost it. Okay. Just lost it. The word filled is, means to be satisfied, to be fed with grass or herbs like an animal, like maybe like a, like a sheep. And the root word of that is a place in which grass grows, like a pasture. And this is a direct callback to Psalms 24. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It, and what does that end up saying? Paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is Jesus doing a direct callback to a psalm, which they all would have known. And moreover, then I just straight up, guys, straight up, Acts chapter 2 just went rushing through my head. Why? You're like, oh, how is, how is that? Hunger and thirst, abandon everything, avidly desire at all costs for righteousness to be communion with God, and then they will be filled. What happened in Acts chapter 2? It says they were gathered together in one mind and one accord. What was that one mind and one accord? We just want to see the comforter come, which is the thing that I was talking about earlier, by the way. It says that we want this, this comforter to come and to be a part. We want to commune with this comforter. And then what does it say? And they were all filled in which the house they were setting, which is the same word, by the way. In one little verse, it is peppered from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament to the coming of the, of the Spirit of God. This is not coincidence, guys. This is not because they didn't have other words. This is because they're trying to paint a picture for us so we can get it. And by reading the entirety of the Scripture, we see how it was in Genesis, how it ended up being in the Old Testament, the prophecy of what was to come, the evidence of what was to come through Christ, and then the complete fulfillment of it when the Spirit of God came. You see, y'all just thought it was like, you better just want to be a good, good person, and then you won't desire things. This is spiritual. And then this one's, this one's harsh too, guys. I'm going to catch up in Luke here in just a minute. We basically just got a few more. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Now, the word merciful... Uh, basically means the one giving out mercy, like to, to have mercy, to give it out. I like it this way, full of mercy. Like you're, you're full of it, mercy. But we need to understand what mercy is because mercy has the, the, this, this huge, huge other, like kind of just deeper idea behind it other than just compassion 
and not doing something to some, someone that they deserve, which is the, the overall arching, right? To have compassion and to say, you know what? You deserve this punishment, this thing, but I'm not going to give it to you. This is the difference between grace and mercy, okay? Grace is getting something that, that you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting something that you do deserve, like in the, in the negative. And this is called compassion commonly. But we view it as just like, I held my tongue. I didn't do something. But the word mercy as in almost all words, have a much bigger, broader concept. And guys, I hate to inform you of this. Actually, I'd love to inform you of this. Most words in Greek specifically, and in Hebrew, but in your Bible, can we just say it that way? Most words that are these attributes in which we're supposed to embody are action words. They are not descriptive ideals. They are an action in which you must perform. So let's look at mercy. To have compassion upon. But look at this. <laughs> it means to help one afflicted and seeking aid. To help the afflicted. Guys, to help the afflicted? Kindness, goodwill, right? We understand that one. Yeah, be kind, goodwill. But it doesn't just mean to not do something. It means by not doing, I'm also going to actively help you get somewhere out of this place. And it says, hey, guess what? If you want mercy, if you want help being actively getting out of your mess, be full of mercy yourself. I'm telling you, Jesus just drops truth bombs all the time. Oh, this is another one. Actually, they're all really good, guys. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Now, this idea of pure, if you read through it there, you can read all, all of the details. It carries one core meaning, which is cleansed. But this cleansing is represented, represented, well, that was really good English, representative, not so much through this water idea, but through something else entirely. Through an idea of cleansing like with fire. Like a vine that needs to be pruned from a tree and consumed and burn up. I refer you to what John said as I baptize you in water, and there one's one that comes that will baptize you with fire. So this is what this purifying means here. The pure of what? Heart. The word heart here. Again, symbolically just meaning like your soul, who you are. But I, I, sometimes we give ourselves way too much credit by saying it that way. And my heart. And we commonly think like in my feelings. And notice um, feelings is mentioned here, but before feelings is thoughts. So your heart is the, soul, the very thing that, that you are, which is all of your thoughts, all of your feelings, all your wills, all your plans, all your purposes. So those things must be purified and cleansed through this fire, which is the Holy Spirit. So he's the judge of whether or not it passes the litmus test or not. For they will what? See God. Now this is no coincidence in which he's saying if this thing happens, this purifying, it could be even called like a born-again experience concept, right, from Nicodemus that we've already talked about. He says if that happens, then what do you do? The very thing he says you won't do, which is perceive the kingdom of God. See God. See him. See his will, his plan, his purpose. He's saying it requires this. Is anybody seeing a theme in all of these right now? 
they're, they're not too far off, right? They're just, it's like, I used this example at lunch today with Wally, actually. We were eating lunch, and, and I think it's a good one, so I'm going to use it again. Which is like, what we're doing with all of these is Jesus is like, I got, a, I got an elephant to eat here. Um, <laughs> I've got this giant pizza, and I'm going to slice it up in little parts. It's all part of one whole. It's not all these different ideas. It's not all this complicated. It's one core concept, but it's so, it's so simple but so profound, your mind can't understand it all, so I'm going to break it apart so you kind of understand this, this idea, this part of God. And then I'm going to show you this part, and then this part over here. Does that make sense? This is what he's trying to do for us right here. So they will perceive the kingdom of God. How will you perceive the kingdom of God? Just like Nicodemus, he said, because you're born again, born of water and of spirit. And the spirit he's referring to is I come to baptize you in that spirit. It's going to cleanse. It's going to burn up the things that don't need to be. It's going to prune off the things that don't need to be. And they'll be completely consumed so you become, almost like Paul said, dead to them. Okay, we got uh, three more. Y'all cool? Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, this pe- word peacemakers is a compound word. It has two words, peace and maker. So we commonly think peacemaker. And I hate, I hate our current modern English idea of a peacemaker. We tend to think of it as a bad thing, A, and we tend to think of it really outside of the context in which it's meant here. We tend to think of it, they're a peacemaker. They just want to make everybody happy. And those are not the same things at all. Trying to make everybody happy makes you bendable and pliable to the wills and whims of them, which would make you not consistent to what God said. But yet here we see we're supposed to be a peacemaker. Now, first word you need to understand is a maker, because a better way to phrase it would be a maker of peace. But I love it. If you look at the word maker that you have there, um, and you look at, at basically at the two words, you've got uh, G4160, um, which is the word... Uh, Basically, to make, let me just pull it up because it'll be a little faster right here. I have to do sound effects. Oh, wrong way. Okay, here we go. All right, y'all seeing this right here. Maker and peace. The maker means one that creates, that exercises, that fulfills. See, just those little words start to put a different, like, I make peace by, like, settling down people, and I've made peace between them. No, it says, you yourself are the one executing and exercising this thing, peace. See, we like to put it off on, like, it's for other people. Like, I'm making peace with for them, and, and this idea of making is you are the one actively pursuing and doing this. And I love this, the last little phrase there is to be the author of it. And then this word peace, yes, means like this, this quietness and this, this tranquility kind of concept that comes out of it. And if you look at like this rest idea, but you've got to go uh, just spend like a good eight hours looking at the idea of true peace, not true sleepy laziness. Because in our idea, this is all we can get. We are like, tranquility on the beach. And this idea of peace has really, like, I mean, that, that's kind of the end result of this idea of peace. It has to do with your spirit, almost like it's not battling or contesting with the will, plan, and purpose of God. And in that, you find fulfillment, and in that, you begin to rest in it, and you don't, are not full of anxiety and stress and all these kind of other things. So, let's continue on. 
So what happens for these, uh, these peacemakers? For they shall be called the children of God. And this is, guys, this is pretty, pretty simple right here. Uh, children of God, meaning you will now be called the begotten of, which is kind of like Jesus said, and you're supposed to be like him. So it's like, this is a core attribute. That's what he's trying to point to here. Not saying like, well, as long as you do this one thing, then you're a child of God. He's trying to point to the idea that this is the, one of the core attributes of which someone who embodies the image and likeness of God on this earth, like in Genesis, because what was God's core thing that he did? He took death, chaos, and destruction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth were without form and void. Without form and void means darkness, chaos, destruction. And what did he do? He turned it into perfection. He was the author of it. He took that and shifted it into something different. He says, then you walk out my image and likeness. Blessed are, the, are, are they which uh, are persecuted for the sake, but specifically righteousness' sake. Now, if you look at this in definition, and I think I put it in there, it's righteousness' sake, and it, it, it really just says, are persecuted for righteousness. And so in English, it would be like, because of righteousness, so for righteousness' sake. It's the same word righteousness that we already read. But let's look at the word persecuted real quick. This word persecuted right here does mean to like, like someone is driving you away to flee from. But I want you to look like you're running swiftly from because someone's trying to catch you. But I want you to look at the figurative language of this. because So the figurative language would be like the symbolic meaning of this. And look how it means to press on. Isn't that interesting? So one part is like someone coming after you, and you're persecuted because they're coming after you. The other part applies to you, and you're the one that presses on through it. All of this in one word, like, but we just don't have words like that, do we? Like it, has, it has two sides. It has the side of what it means, like A, physically, but B, to the person that is the persecutor and the one who is being persecuted. And it says to press on, figuratively, uh, one who runs a, a race, almost like I press towards the mark or I've run my race. For why? To be in this right standing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This should also prove that this is not some kind of X plus Y equals Z, because the answer to the, what you get here is the exact same thing from the beginning. Why? Jesus ran out of different weight. No, I'm just kidding. Why? He's trying to tie it back and saying, this is all one thought, one, all one idea of what you're supposed to embody. This is what it means to be my righteousness. This is what it means to, to walk and do my sayings. This is what it means to be the wise servant, right? Are, are we seeing this? Now, we're going to read these last two right here, all is one, and then we'll talk about it because it's just one big concept, Right? Blessed are ye when men shall uh, revile you and shall persecute you and shall say all manner of evil. Oh, i got to say the word evil before I keep reading here right here. So the word evil is this word paneros in the Greek. And this word does not mean bad in nature, bad in content. It means full of labors, annoyances, and toils. Like, like the exact opposite of a peacemaker, you create annoyances. So just like think of your children when they're playing a video game with the volume up really loud, or at least that's my personal annoyance. Okay, he's like this. this they speak all manner uh, of these toils and, and and things, and they speak falsely against you for whose sake? For his sake. We really need to pay attention to that. We like to blame all people's accusations and evil manners, and say it's because I'm a believer, and it's actually just because you're a poor believer. It was nothing to do with Christ's sake. It was not because of him. It was because of you. <laughs> and me. I'm not saying just you. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know. We have to be careful with that because we can very quickly get, get very twisted in our thinking and say, oh, that's why I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're being persecuted because you didn't do what Jesus said. You were the foolish one who heard it but didn't do it. 
And then they, they're just saying, look at you. And it ain't even a false accusation. It's just one you don't like. <laughs> and it says, I mean, after saying all of this, I mean, has, don't you feel really like, just like, wow, there's so much further to go with this. And then he says, rejoice. What? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. <laughs> and the more the modern church can grasp this, I think the more we'll look like the original church. This one thought, great is your reward in heaven, in eternity, in the place in which God dwells, after this life is over. It's, it's, it's like something, yes, you get a reward here and now, but it is not physical. Jesus said it this way, my kingdom is not of this world. You, don't, you won't see it coming in the natural. It's not how it works. So the reward you get is in eternity. That does not mean, guys, see, we think eternity after you're dead. No, 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 it happens after you're dead. But it also happens in the here and now. It just doesn't happen in any of the ways in which you're expecting it to. So if you are looking for God to do something for you in the natural, you have missed the point of why he gave you his spirit. So just think about this the next time we go in prayer. And you begin to ask God about anything pertaining to the status of your life in the natural. Check yourself and say, I think I'm probably actually missing the grander purpose. Now, I heard someone in your head right now saying, you're saying God doesn't care, and I shouldn't ask God for anything. No, I'm not. I'm saying do what these things say and check the heart first. And by so doing, you start to abandon and quit asking for those things and ask to know him more. And then the end result ends up maybe being these things like seek first the kingdom, then all these things get added to you. But if you're already thinking on the things you're not actually seeking first the kingdom, you put a little parentheses in the front and say, I hope I get my things. I'm seeking first the kingdom. You did it like in reverse. For so they persecuted the prophets which came before you. So Jesus is basically saying, this is what's always happened. So why are you surprised when it happens? Now, real quick, let's jump over to Luke, and then this will be our, our wrap-up here. So in Luke, you notice we kind of follow along, and we kind of like, well, he's ahead. So let's see what Luke has to say about all this. And this will be pretty easy, because now most of these words in Luke are identical to the same words that are used in Matthew. He just uses them in different orders and kind of different ways. One thing we need to understand to answer Kim's question, Luke seems to put this, because in my view, they are too different. It's like Jesus was talking in this one way, and then when he gets down here, he kind of shifts it, or Luke at least portrays it slightly differently. Luke seems to be appealing more to a hurt crowd. Now, how do we know this? If you read in Matthew at the beginning, in chapter, at the ending of chapter 4, it says there's a crowd, and they're asking to be healed, and these things happen, and then it says he begins to teach. doesn't really give us. Luke says... If you read, actually, at the beginning of Luke, the whole multitude sought to touch him and to take the virtue out of him, meant to take, like, there was so much of a drain and a desire on him, and the virtue out of him meant all, all of it, all the power, all the things that he had. Like, there was that much draw. So Luke seems to be painting this picture that the people in which he's talking to are in the natural, these mourners, and, the, and, and they are that in the natural, maybe physically poor, but he's trying to say, hey, all of these things will be encompassed by my spirit, so just go to my spirit. Luke's trying to take it, and we'll see this as we continue Luke's sermon, where he goes with it. They go to the same general place, but Luke kind of shifts the th thought. He gets there a little bit faster 
in my view, in one way. Uh, he doesn't give us as much as, as Matthew. So I hope this makes sense. So, blessed be the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger, and now they shall be filled. See, we're seeing the same thing. Blessed are those who weep, and they'll laugh. Okay, These, this weep and laugh, are, are the weep is the identical uh, idea of mourning, pretty much. Uh, laugh is basically the action of someone who in which like, is, is, um, is, is kind of... I guess the best way I would say it is like you are rejoicing. It's the action of what happens when you rejoice, like when you're already in this state of joy, right? So he's just kind of pairing it up to, to more end results of these things. He said, blessed are you when men shall hate you and when they shall separate uh, you from their company, meaning they disassociate from you and you'll be reproached and they'll cast out your name as if it's evil. So they'll speak evil of you. They're going to say your name and say, oh, he's, he's, but this word evil is also Pentecost, by the way, um, and for the son of man's sake. So he's giving us the exact same understanding. Right? This was what, what Matthew was kind of ending with, and Luke throws it right here at the beginning, saying that abandon, you know, this is how you are now, but you're going to get my kingdom. And when you do, all of those bad things, they're going to still happen, but you're going to look at them completely differently. <laughs> that doesn't preach very well, does it? Become a Christian. You still suffer. You'll just be glad about it. <laughs> Let's make that a bumper sticker, right? Like... <laughs> Okay, and it says, so rejoice in that day and leap for joy and, and, and behold, your reward is great in heaven. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, it's about the same thing. Um, for in like manner they did this unto uh, your fathers, uh, their fathers did unto the prophets. So he's saying the same thing, right? Unto the prophets. Now we get into the woes. So this is now a reversal. Those are those who, uh, uh, woe unto those who are rich, for you have received your con consolidation. Now, this rich, uh, this, this rich idea Okay, it has to do with physically rich, but it also has to do with to be filled your belly, like with natural things. So instead of, this is an exact reversal of the idea of hungering, thirsting, right, for righteousness, and then you'll be filled. He's saying, woe to the person who's already filling themselves with these natural things, because now you've received your reward, you've received your invitation, you took it. You'll see that. He's just flipping it on its head. And he's saying, if you do it in the here and now, you're not going to get, you can't be filled with spirit. You can't be filled with two things simultaneously, unless... As Wally so well pointed out, Wally, I loved our conversation. I said that in our conversation, and Wally said, hmm, unless they're all mixed together like wickedness. And then I spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. Okay, so not me. That was a scripture. If you're not aware, it's in Revelation. Okay, so you're going to receive it. Woe unto they that are full. For they shall hunger. Now he's going back. He's saying the same idea of full hunger. He's kind of doing it. He's really focusing on this. Want you that laugh now, for you'll mourn and weep. So he's saying, if you think that it's about the enjoyment now, wait, wait until this continues on and see what's going to happen. Now, again, I got to say this real quick because in the modern day, I get this. This does not, like, the modern day, we try to get completely away from this idea. Of, of which what separation from God is like. We like to just kind of disassociate from it in modern church. And you may be saying, no, we don't. Well, we don't hear. And I'm not preaching against other churches. I'm talking about in the modern church, when I say church, I don't mean the buildings and on Sunday mornings. I mean in the thought processes of the people which make up the church. We really want to console ourselves and separate from the notion that that is even a, a, an, even a hint's possibility of anything to be separated from God. We, we must know the message Jesus taught. Now he says, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. <laughs> so if everybody likes you and doesn't have a problem with you from time to time, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> I do something 
right all the time then. <laughs> Especially to my wife. Um, so, no, <laughs> that was a joke, guys. Uh, so, woe unto them when they speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now, what is Luke doing? Matthew didn't really say anything about false prophets or anything. What is Luke doing? All he's doing is flipping it again. He already talked about what your fathers did, uh, what the, your fathers did to the true prophets. And then he's saying what their fathers did to the false prophets, meaning they spoke well of false prophets. They said the things they wanted to hear. This has a lot to do also if you read uh, about Jonah. And, and Jonah's kind of prophesying career was an interesting one. He basically just before he kind of got swallowed by the fish whatnot, he just said whatever he knew the king wanted to hear. He didn't actually say what God said. And then God said, well, watch me use you anyways. Uh, and then he got mad about it. So th- th- this kind of an idea, this false prophet, they said whatever they want to say. They spoke well of them, of the false prophets. Uh, by the way, read any prophet in the Bible. They were always running for their lives. Everybody wanted to kill them, like all the time. But I say unto you, which here, love your enemies and do good unto them and hate you. We're not going to read this part. This is where we're going to stop because then we're going to get into this comparison thing that happens. Now, I'd like you to see that in Matthew, what's the very next verse? For you're the salt of the earth. What happens if the salt loses its savor? So if you think about this, everything we just talked about of these blessed are, the blessed are, the blessed are, the, and he says, those things make you have your savor. And then go refer back to the message that we taught about salt and light, and you'll see. Now, again, Luke doesn't go straight there. Luke gives us some more, and we're going to get into that next week. So this Sermon on the Mountain, Sermon on the Plain, this is what we'll be doing for the next, for sure, one to two more weeks and where we kind of take. Now, what we're going to do next week, because I focused more on Matthew this week, and we saw what Luke said. Next week, we're going to flip and dissect more Luke and just kind of look at what Matthew said. And then I'll put the definitions in there and the ideas in there so you can go look at that. So that way we're getting a well-balanced idea between each, each writer and kind of how they said things, okay? Now, these are the only two accounts of this particular uh, sermon that, that we have. This is by far the longest. All the others that we see are kind of more short little parables here, parables there. There's one more that's kind of like a, a chapter and a half, but none of them compare to this. So as we read through this, I highly recommend that you kind of meditate on it before you come in on Wednesday. I'm not saying listen to the whole thing again necessarily, but just look over your notes, kind of refresh your memory and your ideas. And above all, when you come in, keep in mind saying what I'm doing right now is seeing multiple views of the same story to try to get me to understand the person of Christ and how God does what he does, who he is. It's all trying to reveal that to us so we can physically act on it. All scripture is given for spiritual understanding and natural application. So if we're looking at it and trying to get more out of it than that, we're going to be led astray. We're going to end up getting things that are not there. We're going to end up looking at things which are not there. That's why we're doing this. And guys, I'm going to give one last warning as we, as we pray. As we continue on with this, I've said this from day one and I will continue to say this. Not hidden information that we are dissecting here. Just because you haven't heard it does not mean it's new information, okay? And so I'm not degrading you for not hearing it. I'm just saying do not get in your head in which somehow Jared or like we've deciphered this information. That's not the case at all. The only reason we're defining words in the manners that we are is because we do not speak the language that this was written in. Today, at lunch with Wally, I'm just referring to our lunch again, the lady didn't speak English. Well, I speak Paquito Spanish. And there was a little bit of a disconnect. And at one point, I was trying to get limes. And I was like, I don't know how to say limes in Spanish. Limo. Like, I don't know. It's lime. Like, and I said limon. And he's like, oh, li-, like, and I was like, yeah, green lemon. <laughs> like, 
right? And so what did we have to do? Use more words to describe one word, okay? That's all we're doing here. So do not take this as some kind of mystical craziness, okay? That's warning number one. More warning number two is as we continue on with this, we are going to have to confront things Jesus said that A, we don't like, and B, we disagree with. There are pieces of our theology, okay? Our system in which Jesus sometimes just takes a hammer to. And then there's times where it seems like he's saying two different things in two different places. And this is not the case. We just have to look at why he's saying what he's saying. So I challenge you, challenge you, challenge you, challenge you, that if you're missing a week, we are doing everything within our power, truly, to make sure that all the notes, there's one missing right now that I'm going to get fixed, and there's only the one video from Sunday. It is not because... I want to see views on YouTube. It is not because I just enjoy typing and, and, and copying things. It's because if you miss one, and I keep doing these references back, at a point, it's going to be a reference to a reference because it's all one concept, and we won't be able to continue to refer back. We're going to have to take it on the assumption that you've re- heard all the rest before we dive into it. Now, that's coming in weeks to come, and I know you're like, what is he talking about? I'm just trying to prepare your heart and your mind for it. I'm not, now, if, uh, let me just go ahead and clear this up too. If you're also thinking like, oh, we're going to end up, actually, Jesus is the devil. No, that is chaos, okay? And the reason I say this is because I've actually heard someone recently get that out of scripture somehow. Um, so, like, this, 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 it's not anything like that. It just challenges things that are, that are generally propagated and said but we don't really know what we're saying, and the real meaning of it is sometimes the opposite. And it's not a hidden meaning. It's just over time, people got lazy and didn't research it. And not, We're doing textual research, but I'm talking research in your heart. They didn't ask themselves. They just kept going with something. And so I just want to be clear on that. And I know that's like a weird thing probably to hear, but just I want to be really clear on that, that we make sure and take the utmost devotion and care through studying this, uh, because we're about to get into all of the healings of Jesus. That's coming up when we're done with this. We're about to get into uh, the casting out of devils and how that stuff was happening and, and, and all that. We're going to get into Jesus talking about what happens in end times. We're going to, because Jesus talked about all these things. So we're going to get to all of those things. And if we don't have a good foundation, <laughs> we're going to be like whoosh, splintered everywhere. Okay. So that is all. I want to thank you guys.